So Shauna, I saw that post on Instagram about Kamala Harris and intersectionality. Uh, why don't you share with our listeners what that was about? Oh, yes, yes. You know, I, I think I was getting at the height of my impatience when it came to the intersections of Kamala Harris's identity. I posted on my Instagram and on Twitter a note about intersectional identities. White women keep the same energy you have for Kamala Harris's womanhood as you do for her blackness. And so with that, you know, I think there's some stuff to unpack there. Maybe I was just angry and needed to vent, but hey, you and I can vent together. Yeah, let's talk about it after the break. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So I know we are both in two completely different time zones, but I am sure that you're now caught up on all the things uh, in relation to our uh, most recent inauguration, the inauguration of uh, Joseph Robinette Biden. Robinette is a good middle name. Isn't that like a great it middle is. name? Like yeah. a family name? Um, <laughs> Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. Um, and Kamala Harris as our new Madam Vice President. And you know, I, I watched a lot and I saw a lot. Um, there was so much to observe about our country and what we want to see, what we don't want to see. What, what were you, your thoughts on that? Because I know we were probably watching at different times because of the time zone issue. Yeah, I um, loved it. Right. Um, for me, you know, I like Joe. <laughs> um, I have some some problems with him that <laughs> probably don't aren't worthy of talking about in this particular podcast. But, you know, he is another all straight white guy, right? So not a whole lot different from the uh, 45 other presidents. Um, mm -hmm. Or 44, would that be? 44, um, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, <clears throat> but so for me, really, it was Kamala Harris's inauguration that was most meaningful to watch her um, be sworn in by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, which was just brilliant. Um, that was incredible. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, I loved that so much. It was very moving for me. And then later on that night when I was watching the Celebration of America, um, she had another moment where she spoke and then was followed by John Legend um, singing um, a song that I have now forgotten the title of, like, I'm feeling good or something. But I thought that was extraordinarily, mm -hmm. that was extraordinarily moving. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's it's a new day, it's a new dawn. Um, was of the lyrics, and so kind of having Kamala speak followed by that song sung by John Legend, uh, I thought was a really fantastic set. Um, so you know, I listened to Biden's speech, thought it was good. But I have some thoughts about it and its applicability. <laughs> mm, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so we can we can probably dove, dovetail that in here, but yeah. Yeah. I did, I did, I did notice, Shauna, your point that so many of my white friends are celebrating uh, Kamala Harris as the first woman, but are neglecting to identify the import of her being the first woman of color um, in the vice presidency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know if I'm looking for balance or equal weight 
but I do feel like there is just some neglect there to the other identities that she holds. And so um, like I was sharing before with someone, I feel like it's very heavy RBG, but not heavy BLM <laughs> or pick another uh, another set of letters and acronyms. I just feel like it's very heavy woman. And, and that's um, what frightens me a little bit because we know that white narratives, even within intersectionality, have kind of robbed other identities at the same time. So think about all the times where white identity has kind of robbed the intersection of being uh, white and or, or a woman of color or LGBT or what have you. It just keeps robbing other identities of the fullness of themselves. And that to me kind of, it doesn't allow for the nuance. You know, I, I know I use nuance, probably that's the most popular word on this podcast or I any mean, nuance is that nothing is that clear. And it seems to be very mm -hmm, clear mm -hmm. who white women support and what sections of Kamala's identity they support, whereas the others are kind of uh, ignored or at least overlooked for the moment. Yeah. And it, you know, it brings up a lot of questions about feminism. Um, it also brings up a lot of mm -hmm. questions about some of the um, kind of central mantras of feminism I guess one of them being um sisterhood yeah. is powerful yeah. and so I think about sisterhood in in women's support of um Kamala Harris as vice president and it does feel like there's just a repeated narrative around womanhood equals white womanhood and mm -hmm. the experience of white women um, is the experience of all women, right? So we don't need to mention race as white women because whiteness is the default of women, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's the, it's the default. Exactly. And, you know, I think it's, once again, it's, we're going back to this norm or we're going back to what's the cookie cutter. Um, it kind of reminds me of that quote by Abby Wambach that, you know, she's saying, I don't want to use diversity anymore because we're saying diverse from what? So usually we've been saying diversity means diverse from white men, for example. Well, if we're in the feminist area or the feminist wave of thought, now we're diverse from white womanhood. You know, and so now we have to think about it in different ways that are still anchored in whiteness. Once again, um, a person that's LGBT, well, LGBT diverse from what? Uh, LGBT white folks, you know, because that's a different experience. It's a different struggle. Um, it's a layered struggle that we don't necessarily want to speak to because it's more complex. It's not as easy to grasp, um, but there always seems to be this anchor of a norm that we're trying to diversify from. And I feel like white women are that anchor mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. feminism that it, it's, we, we need to decenter that. And I think we've talked about that language before of what decentering really means. Um, it's not, Oh, get the white mm -hmm. folks out of the middle. It means bring everyone in the middle. And so you know, given that, how can we continue to decenter white women in ways that still value their contributions, but value all different women's contributions? And I think the woman-centeredness of Kamala has been um, heightened more than being South Asian, than being Black, than, you know, all of these other perspectives. It, it just feels like it's another game of oppression Olympics that I don't want to play. And I just wondered mm -hmm. if other people felt that way or other women who are non-black did anyone else feel similarly and it sounds like we were kind of getting some hints of that both of us were mm -hmm. yeah it definitely um for me it wasn't the fact that she was quote unquote just <laughs> 
use that word tentatively, a woman, um, but that she was a woman of color, right? Mm -hmm. Like that Mm -hmm. is much more significant, I think, um, in terms of having her in that role and for young girls of color to see her, um, you know, because we had Hillary Clinton run, um, and when, when the popular vote, but anyway, that's, that's the past. Let it go. Let Let it go. go. Just let it go. Let Um, it go. You know, you know, but she, and, and so again, like a woman breaking the glass ceiling, but a white woman. Um, and so then again, women of color are invisible. And also, you know, we can't ignore the fact that women of color have been so instrumental, particularly black and African-American women in uh, winning democratic seats and um, bringing home Georgia and other states, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I think that that gets glossed over when we just talk about women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and you know, here's the thing. If anyone that watched the U- the U.S. inauguration, even if you were focused on the women who were present or the women who were involved, and I know it was a microcosm of that because we could not have a fully exhaustive inauguration because of the pandemic, but even if you look across the women that were involved, look at the diversity of women in lots of different directions. Um, so, you know, when we think about the uh, um, Amanda Gorman, who, um, yes, she was a black woman, she is a black woman, but she also um, provided diversity of age, for example, she's in her uh, 20s, I believe she was 22. Um, so we have her, mm-hmm. um, we have Hillary, we have, you know, we have all these people here, of course, the the incomparable Michelle Obama, because her hair needed its own Facebook page. I mean, for real, like everybody <laughs> talked about it, like yesterday, it was the complete diversion, what she was wearing and, and her hair. Um, but look at the diversity of women there, even um, the woman that was the fire chief from Fulton, Georgia, yeah. uh, that signed uh, the Pledge of Allegiance, all that brought in different elements of diversity, still anchored in womanhood in many ways. And so you're right, you know, our, our current president, our brand new president, who's been in office a little over 24 hours now, um, yes, is another old white guy. Um, but look how he made it his business to make sure that the highlight wasn't just mm-hmm. him, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. there were highlights elsewhere. And I think that's where maybe the inauguration gives us somewhat of a thought Um, a thought pattern um, or a model when we want to talk about feminism in all of these, um, I'm thinking about the arms of an octopus, all these different directions, because we need to think about them in this way. So what does it mean to be feminist in LGBT spaces, feminist in uh, differently abled spaces, feminist in ethnically even, Um, you know, how are we thinking about this feminist in religion? There's so much I could go into just with that alone. And so how can we continue to do that? And what does that mean for us missing the mark with Kamala and us missing the mark with endurance sport? We got a long way to go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. despite the numbers telling us that, yes, we have a good presence, but how are we anchoring it and being a woman and all these other um, overlapping identities? I, I'm sure we have some work to do there. Yeah, actually, I really like your point about um Joe Biden not making the inauguration about himself, I think in probably a way that we have never seen before, Um, you know, in, in his naming of white supremacy even, and then having such a diverse cast of people alongside him um, was really important. And I think that in and of itself perhaps is a model for endurance sport in terms of 
he's the leader, right? He's the president, but right. he's saying, don't shine right. the light on me all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I, I need to pass the mantle, pass the torch um, to all these other people that otherwise would get um, would would be rendered invisible, right? By our centrality of whiteness and maleness. Um, you know, and so we can think about translating that into club leadership, into race leadership, into federation leadership. Um, and how do you do that with grace? And then, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, to your other point about women, certainly we, one of the biggest issues that you and I and others have been working on is increasing representation of women in triathlon and endurance sports more broadly. I mean, there's a lots of people working on that in cycling in particular, but we need to think about women not as this monolithic group, right? Because I think the monolithic group thought process does default to white, like unconsciously. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's the default. And and that's the thing is how do we reframe the default? Um, So now there's no longer just one framework, but there are multiple frameworks in the decentering process, you know, the decentering. I've had situations in the past where we were, uh, decentering some groups and centering other groups, and people really got an attitude that they were being decentered um, and putting their own definitions of what that really means into decentering. So, you know, when you look into the 80s literature on what centering and decentering really means, whether it's in leadership and organizations, et cetera, decentering doesn't mean let's remove and now throw away white women from the center of organizations, et cetera. What we're saying is let's broaden the circle so everyone can be in the center and everyone can be more broadly included. When you've spent decades, sometimes centuries, centering a particular group, that becomes the unspoken default that's hard to uh, shift out of without conscious effort. And so, you know, what does it mean to decenter any particular group, men, women, whiteness? What does it mean to decenter a group? And, and what's the process for doing that in endurance sport? That mm. That's, I, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, Joe Biden had an entire com- inaugural committee to help him think through that. But for us, how do we do that? Yeah. And you know, you're making me think of unity. <laughs> um, and obviously, uh, President Biden's um, inaugural address, I think he mentioned unity upwards of eight times, maybe over 10. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and <clears throat> to be decentered or to advocate a position that decenters identities that have historically and currently um, had more traction, had more um, value, power, you know, that's difficult to do while also kind of maintaining this kumbaya unity message. Um, and so in some ways, I think he is he contradicts himself, right? Because he talks about ending systemic racism, mm, white mm-hmm. supremacy, um, doing a better mm-hmm. job of being inclusive of the trans and non-binary community. Um, mm-hmm. And he's, you know, he's instructed all the federal offices to get back with him within 200 days, like a a plan around how are they going to work on equity, et cetera. But at the same time, Mm. he's saying we need to have unity. And given the state of things in this country, those two ideas don't sit together, right? Because you're going to, you're going to ruffle some feathers is probably the polite way to put that. um, Oh, through the decentering. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Well, and you know, that's where, you know, some people have been calling the speech, especially when it comes to unity, empty platitudes, you know, where it's like, of course, that's what you're supposed to say, because that's what every incoming president has done. You know, they have called for unity. They know that elections are inherently divisive. Um, and and I would say even, <laughs> even some of the more uh, or, or, or less volatile ones. Obviously, we've had an extremely volatile election. Um, and But I would say even prior to that, that's the whole point of, a, of an election is to let different voices be heard, count them up, and that mm-hmm. makes the decision mm-hmm. for us. It in, inherently is divisive. And so it's kind of like, okay, we're all Americans we're all United States citizens. We're going to vote differently. This is a process that we consciously take on that we are going to be divided for a particular amount of time because no one is expecting one candidate to walk away with every single vote. That's why it's called the popular vote. And at the end of this process, we will figure out who had more votes than not. And then we will come back together again and get work done. The coming back together part is difficult when you've inherently Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. adopted a democratic process of every voice being heard. So that's, I would even say democracy is somewhat antithetical to unity if depending on how you define unity. Right. Because we still haven't defined it. Like I I posted um, earlier um, on my social media, you know, how are we defining unity here? Because I guess my unity may not be how others define unity. I'm defining unity not as agreement, but as forward movement together. I'm not sure if everyone can do that or everyone is able to do that at this point. Yeah, and that's a. I think there was an assumption about a universal understanding of what unity meant, right? Um, and it feels a little bit, as we're talking here, mm-hmm. a bit like, why can't we all get along? <laughs> right, there you go. There you know, you with some, some colorblindness thrown in there too, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. we're all it, we're all humans, right? We all bleed the same blood. <laughs> right. That kind of rhetoric is is now what I'm thinking. It feels like, and I imagine, you know, for communities mm-hmm. that are con- marginalized, right, or under live under kind of the threat of violence, mm-hmm. it does feel like an empty platitude, right? Because this shit has been said before and nothing has changed. I, I'm look as with all the blackness within me. I'm not trying to hear that. I'm not, and 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 the reason why I'm not is because when I look around and observe this country. I still observe people who are still not okay with the outcomes of the civil war, which directly affected my race. So given that we've Mm -hmm. never been unified on certain things, we have never once, I mean, you know, as a black person, a person of African descent, I can say we have never been unified on the topic of the economics of this country because we had people who decided to kidnap people from their home country to do our bidding here. That is not unification because you have people who are not here based on their will or their decision-making. So this entire country has been built upon the lack of unity. And I'm not saying that's pleasant to say. I mean, it sucks to even say it as I'm hearing it right now. I don't even like saying it, but that's what I observe. And so given that, that's why I have such a hard time you know, with the president's inaugural address and all president's inaugural addresses, because I I feel like it would be more authentic to say, let's get over the election and get some work done. 
I don't have to like you. You don't have to like me. Mm-hmm. You know, so, some of the things that I heard that were platitudes that were, you know, we know they're pleasantries and formality um, in American culture that have to happen or do happen um, when a new president is inaugurated. But in the same 24 hours, sometimes in the same couple of hours, we heard the very same people that were singing the new president's praises telling him that this is a bunch of crap and I don't agree with it. And I'm going to try to intercept everything that you do from here on out. Is that what we're calling American unity? Mm. I don't know. And so, you know, looping that back into how we do feminism or how we do intersectionality, we are literally swimming upstream here because we realize that once again, we're in a system that may not have ever been completely unified in its understanding of each other. And therefore we're trying to both understand each other and function with each other. And that's tough to do when you don't know each other. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a lot of work to do. And now we have the numbers, you know, now we know that, at least 81 million people and 74 million people disagreed with one another. And then when you break down the monoliths, the reasons for disagreement are even deeper than that. So how do we bring that all together in ways that I I would not necessarily say it's true unity. Maybe I need to look up the definition of unity, but to me, it's more so forward movement rather than unity because Mm -hmm. we're, we're Mm -hmm. never going to agree on the fact that at some point, um, someone's ancestors believe that I should only be three fifths of a person. We never going to agree on that. Mm-hmm. Or with women, someone agreed that we should not vote. And then finally we got through that with the suffragettes and so forth. And then eventually women of color got to vote, et cetera. We will, we may never agree on that. There may be some old white men somewhere that still think that women of any color should never be able to vote. I don't know, but that's the history that we come from. So therefore, how do we, move forward together, which I think is distinct from unity. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I just, I just think we need a better word, (laughs) either a better word, or I I feel like that, you know, that section in your dissertation where you pick the word and then you define it the way you need to use it for your study. I, I feel like we've picked this word of unity, but nobody's really defined it. And therefore we're all functioning from different definitions of the word. And it sucks because it feels like we're going in different directions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you define unity. Maybe you define it a little differently for me, but I think we all have a different take on it. Um, what would you say about that? Yeah, well, I'm thinking about a, a um, correlation to feminism, right? That there is um, an assumption around a universal understanding of feminism, right? So we all have this shared, we all have this shared definition of feminism, uh, which uh-huh. is not actually, um, yeah, yeah, not actually that simple or that singular. So I, I it kind of makes me think about that with unity, right? Like in feminism, it's about all women, um, but that all women has really defaulted to white women, um, you know, and s- still does that. T- today, right? Um, Not to the same extent as it did 50 years ago, but um, it's still there. And so, you know, what does, what does unity mean? It's a great question, actually, because I have not given it that much thought, but the more more we talk, I am thinking that, you know, my kind of gut response to what is the definition of unity is a very, very, probably a very white understanding of it we're all getting along. Um, there's peace, right? We're unified. It's all very beautiful and spiritual and, you know, great. <laughs> right? And and that's super yeah. idealistic, right? Um, but 
you know, yeah. I'm actually, I feel like in just this short 20 minutes, my um, understanding of the word has evolved and I'll have to think more on it, but mm-hmm. unity is moving forward, like you said, versus that kind of idyllic understanding of unity. Um, yeah. Because you can't have progress without conflict, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Given everything that this country has been through from its inception. Like if you can't acknowledge that the United States was not actually founded on freedom and all men are created equal, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. yes, yeah. you can't, it, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't, <laughs> right? that's right, that's right, exactly, um, right. Yeah. So, you know, that's a hard truth. And I Mm. think uh, the message of unity, the kind of kumbaya message of unity, like, yeah, blankets over that reality completely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the 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 kumbaya definition of it, the I I think with unity, it's a great I almost want to say it's a filler word at this point. You know, we're filling mm-hmm. in the yeah. gaps of things where we we don't know exactly how to define it, but we want to bring people together to get something done. And we're not quite sure how to bring folks together. And I, I think a maybe a better word would be like synergy or something similar to that, where mm. we're not we we don't claim to be mirror images of each other. That's part of the beauty of being American is that we can have this mixture. Um, so how can we work together in ways that move us in the same direction? And so, you know, it kind of feels like, you know, a dance with, you know, two dance partners that no, I have a different step than you. You might be stepping right while I'm stepping left, but we're still going in the same direction in a beautiful way that gets us to a goal. Mm. Um, you know, th- that is a better visual. I'm more of a visual learner. Um, that's a better visual for me than than unity because unity makes me feel like military precision, which is very American, by the way, military precision yes. where everyone has on the same thing. Even the, the, the women like you, Lisa, with long hair, have your hair pulled back in a bun because the goal is to make you look more what normal, what is yeah. normal in the military yeah. masculine. And so all these things where um, we're trying to cookie cutter ourselves as Americans, and that defeats the whole point of being American. And so you know, for me, and I think that's where, you know, looping it back to Kamala is that she, I don't think fits any mold that any president or vice president mm-hmm. has had to this moment, to, to yesterday at whatever time she was sworn in, 1120 on, on the day she was sworn in, I feel like she obliterated uh, every cookie cutter because she wasn't she wasn't a man, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, she wasn't a white person. Um, she wasn't a person who was educated at Ivy uh, at Ivy League schools or even uh, predominantly white institutions necessarily. She went to a historically black college, um, Howard University, right down the road in D.C. You know, I could go down the laundry list um, of identity group. She's, she is not a birth mother to children. She's a stepmother. Yeah, we could just go on and on and on about all the multiple identities that she holds um, that is different from what we've experienced as a country and how I like it. I, I like how she frustrates our notions of what we thought should be mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. politics or in leadership in general. Uh, she frustrates that in the best of ways. And so, you know, for me, it makes it much more complex. And so I kind of feel like we rob ourselves of, these deeper understandings if we just paint her as oh my goodness she's the first woman da, 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 da. yes and 
pull out the whole laundry mm-hmm. list of other mm-hmm. identity groups. And frankly, you know, and Lisa, please, if, if I'm going in the wrong direction on this, but I'm imagining that that could be a privilege of being a white woman is that, oh, I only have to think about only loosely only have to think about being a white woman. I don't have to think about being a white woman and a stepmother and the first in elected office and, you know, going to a school that most people, I would love to poll white folks to see how many people actually knew or didn't know that historically black colleges existed. Like they didn't even know that that was a particular group in some countries that you don't even have that particular group. That's distinctly American. So, you know, all of those points of her identity that frustrates people's thought process where it's not as simple and white women rob themselves of deeper, more complex thought. If they just look at Kamala as a woman. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be some more layers to it. Um, And, and I, I feel like white women are stopping at like, uh, feminism 101, and we need to get to 201, 301, 401 to even begin to understand Kamala and her significance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I would say that um, the average white woman um, doesn't often think about their whiteness, right? They're just thinking woman. Um, and that's the unifying oh, principle, yeah, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because mm-hmm. it, it it, the identity that is marginalized is the identity that gets thought about most often, right? So like for me growing up, I was very aware of my girlhood, womanhood. Like that was just so salient for me. And I never thought about whiteness until my um, older years when I started to develop an awareness around white privilege, right? So I would say that for a lot of white women who are celebrating Kamala's inauguration um, or Madam Vice President's um, inauguration, they are only thinking about womanhood because to think about race feels divisive to them. And that is the antithesis of unity. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so, so here we go with the feminism. So it sounds like we're calling feminist to embrace conversations about race because it it feels it feels like white fragility frankly you know it feels like you know we are too we're we're strong enough to have conversations about womanhood and and feminism we're not strong enough to talk about that and race at the same time right yeah so how do we get and i know this is a a conversation we cannot answer on a podcast in this short period of time, but I think we do need to wrestle with how can white women get stronger at holding white womanhood and all the things at the same time in conversations and interactions, definitely in an endurance sport. You know, I I think that's important to kind of consider and, and the defensiveness comes up just like it does when we're talking with white men about race or white men about other things is that, you know, well, I already have the burden of being a woman. I don't, I don't have the time or the emotional energy to talk about being a woman of color too. And hold up, wait a minute, you know? And so I I think that's a muscle to flex um, and and grow over time and and helping people to kind of hold those conversations at the same time. And and that's hard because people don't want to hold I'm oppressed and I'm privileged at the same time. They, they don't want to hold that right, together. I right. mean, I've, I've encountered, I, I think I told you about this, where I had a, a black female uh, student in one of my master's courses that wanted to dispute me that she was not privileged in any way. And I'm thinking to myself, you just walked across the door of a university classroom. 
that in of itself and a private one that's very expensive mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. that. So, you know, we can go there. Um, but I think that's where we have to challenge folks and, and insert those questions to make folks think, yeah, white woman, you're probably having a rough time in this particular area, but also hold that the woman of color um, who may be an immigrant, you know, on and on and on is also having heightened challenges as well that are different from right. yours. Right. Still, still valuable, but different at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think about, you know, tr- you know, looping this back to endurance sport to help listeners think about how this applies. You know, I'm thinking about leadership and you and I have talked about kind of the um, paucity of um, women leaders, women of color leaders, folks with disabilities. Um, And if you're looking at your leadership team, either at your organization um, or your club, and you're thinking about, oh, well, there's, it's only got men on the leadership team. We need to, we need to have more women, right? That's great. And then you need to think about women, not as this monolithic group, right? You need to think about, okay, if we're going to have more women, then we need to have um, Mm -hmm. a a diverse representation of women, right? Because a white woman cannot speak for all women's experience, much like a white man cannot speak for all men's experience, right? And neither can speak for the trans experience. Right, right. So it's like, it's deepening your understanding and then arguing that that doesn't mean that they can't be like a unified leadership team, a unified message, a unified club, Mm, right. mm -hmm. By bringing that in for, by bringing that up. Right. Right. Well, and so let me ask you a question. I know this is an on the spot question, but I think it's important to kind of consider because we wrestled with this too, you know, unfazed obviously is connected with outspoken. And we talked about this initially with outspoken, how, you know, I would suggest loosely that um, outspoken was kind of, you know, the Kamala of the industry, if you will, you know, the first to really focus on particular Mm -hmm, topics. mm -hmm. And even as you and Sarah and, and all the production team were doing such a great job at that, you still were able to both hold that, oh, we're pioneers in this area, but look how far we have to go because yes, we're very female. We're thrilled about that, but we're also very white female. got a growing it. So, you know, just tell me about how, you know, maybe just a little snippet of how you really wrestled with the both. It feels like success and failure at the same time, you know, where it's like, okay, we're extremely successful within this realm, but we're also not quite meeting the mark in this area. And we know we have a ways to go Mm -hmm. and there's an arc to the work. Um, You know, just share how y'all kind of wrestled with that because I wasn't in on all that completely. So I'd love to hear more. Yeah, I mean, I think from the beginning, it was a value of Sarah and mine to make sure that we didn't end up being a white woman's conference. I mean, our first year, we were predominantly Mm. white, right? And our second Mm -hmm. year, I think still predominantly white, but significantly better than the first year. I mean, it was noticeably Mm. different. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have just put in the work really to figure out how to do that. Um, But it's we, we have made mistakes and we don't always get it right. And in some cases, you know, we've leaned on you, Shauna, and other women of color um, for, good, for good or for bad, right? Which is probably where some of our mistakes are made. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if I were doing this, let me see, where would that put me? 2003, where are we at? 2021. So that would be 2021, 2021 mm-hmm. t- 2011. 
2000, the middle, oh my gosh, my math is awful. What would that be like? The middle of the 2000s. <laughs> um, right. Um, right. I probably right. wouldn't have had that same intentionality, right? I would have been kind of operating from that feminism is for, is is just about women, right? I wouldn't have necessarily considered that feminism looks different and is experienced differently for women of different racial identities, different abilities, different sexual orientations. Um, I think I would have had a much more kind of narrow monolithic view of it. And I think I probably Mm. would have approached outspoken in the same way. Like it wouldn't have clicked for me that to have a conference that is only um, experienced by white women is a problem, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think with that increased awareness, Sarah and I went into the project knowing that we really had to work to make sure that it didn't end up that way. And I, yeah, it's a work, in, mm. it's a work in progress. So I don't know if that really answers your question. Um, it's, it's a commitment. It's like a deep mm-hmm. commitment to mm-hmm. not wanting it to just be about white, straight, able-bodied women. Mm. Well, but you know, what's interesting about that though, because I was just having a conversation earlier with an organization that I'm working with that's on this arc of the work, meaning that you know, outspoken wasn't just going to get it right in the first conference. And then we, you know, when we just replicate it, you know, that that wasn't going to be the case, there's an arc to it. And so the first year may have been, okay, we really want to focus on women and whosoever will come. And so we focused on women. All right, great. But we walked in knowing that this year we're focused on women generally, but next year we're going to work on women and race. And then the following year, following year, we're going to work on um, women, uh, race, and then, uh, I don't know, sexual orientation or specifically reach out to the transgender population and their communities, um, and, and build, 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 um, so that as you move, it's an Mm -hmm. arc so that you build in both the urgency of the work, but also the patience for the development of how it happens over time. Right. And I just, what I love about y'all's story as far as outspoken is that, you know, walking into the first conference with eyes wide open. And I think that's the first challenge is that if you're not aware, you know, if you don't look around at XYZ conference or XYZ race and realize, oh, we are mighty white here. We are very white here um, versus, oh, we're just here to race and we did a great job. We hit our numbers. We wanted a thousand athletes. We got a thousand. Eh, but if 999 of them were white males, Depending yeah. on your value yeah. set as a race director or owner or whomever, you one perspective may think we had a great success. Another perspective may be like, oh, my God, this was a miserable failure. How do we do this differently or how do we do this better? Um, and so I think the the first step of awareness that y'all walked in with is just incredible um, and, and looking for ways to kind of parlay that out. So I, mm-hmm. I think it's a. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to go to the point of saying it's a model, but I do think it's a huge lesson learned for people just to even be aware who's there and who's not there. Right. Um, and folding that in, even as you're trying to be complex. Yeah. Um, and, and so I don't know if y'all have decided, you know, if you have another focus or a focus moving next, I know you're always focused on women and race, um, but other uh, things that you want to focus on in the future. Mm. I mean, Probably. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the other piece that you made me think about is, um, you know, and this is true for Kamala Harris, right? Being the first, being the only, right? When we Mm -hmm. think about um, organizational um, development, um, in particular around diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's really hard if you're an all-white organization to bring in a single person of color 
or um, if you're all able-bodied, bring in a single person with disabilities because then the the perceived responsibility from the majority is on that individual's shoulders to kind of quote unquote fix the problem. Mm-hmm. And so my recommendation would be that you're ensuring as an organization, as a race, is that you're bringing in, that you're working hard to bring in more than one person, right? Because with Outspoken, I think what I saw, at least from year one to year two, and hopefully into year three, is that when there's m- more women of color, more women with disabilities, more women from the LGBT community, then people looking in see that and say, okay, that's a space for me, right? And so it's a little bit of like the, what is that? The Rolling Stone gathers moss. I can't, that's not it exactly. But there's a little bit of that too, right? And I've Mm -hmm. seen that with organizations Mm -hmm. where they've intentionally worked on diversifying their staff, racially diversifying their staff. So it's more than just white people. And then over time, the staff has become extremely racially diverse because it's not a single person of color and everyone else is white, right? Which is highly stressful Mm. for the person of color, like being the only woman in an all male dominated space. It's really freaking stressful. You Um, you know, and and look, and it's stressful on both the small scale and the large scale, because I remember, you know, um, (laughs) so when, when I was ordained into my denomination, what was so interesting was that the space that I was ordained in, literally historically was anti-woman because they didn't even have a changing room for women to put on their regalia. They they had a all male space. And so I was one of seven women being ordained Mm. and we didn't even know where we were supposed to go because there was nothing marked. There was nothing there for us. We had to go into a restroom to go put on our, you know, thousands of dollar regalia for ordination because there wasn't space for us historically. And, And that's, you know, yeah, right. sim- symbolic and literal in many ways, but I think it's something to really uh, think about. How are we making space for folks? Because historically, right. there has been no space for them. Um, Kamala, I-, I started thinking logistically with Kamala. Um, is there actually going to be space for her um, to go to the restroom? Because traditionally, there's been a mm. restroom that might have been private, or it might have been the men's restroom that the vice president always went to. Well, right. where will she go? I mean, I'm just thinking about practical things. Yeah, um, but they're symbolic and important to think about. So. It's tough being first. What can we say, Lisa? It's very tough being first, um, but it's also tough being only. Um, Mm -hmm. And how do we hold that together? Uh, Kamala's got, Madam Vice President has a a tough job to do. Um, And so do we, you know, I think we're, we're modeling some of that or trying to model off of some of that in endurance sport. We've got some work to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you just said about, um, being the first, being the only is just underscores how we started this conversation that we need to recognize um, Madam Vice President for all of her identities. Um, That yes, she's a woman and that's groundbreaking, but it's also arguably more groundbreaking that she's a woman of color, immigrant parents, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and all of her history that she brings to the position. And I would say that you know, folks in endurance sport, when they're looking at their leadership teams, they're looking at um, ambassadors for their teams, uh, for their brands, that that's an important piece to remember. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so I, you know, I kind of feel strongly that, you know, breaking the mold, even shattering the mold is something that uh, Madam Vice President has done. Um, We're striving to do, I think uh, Outspoken has done it and continues to do it. Um, Maybe we're calling Endurance Sport to uh, not just break the mold, but shatter it because it's not just one mold, it's multiple molds at the same time. And how do we do it all? Well, I, I don't have a strong response to that, but I do think that we need to hold it and, um, and mull it over. How can we shatter this mold? Mm-hmm. Uh, Madam Vice President Shirley has done it. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at Try to Defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. Mm-hmm.